0: Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter four. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? The word of the Lord?
1: It's, um It's a great honor to get to be with you today, and I recognize that it's always a dangerous thing to turn the microphone over to an attorney. (laughs) And I can tell you that um, this is not going to be a typical sermon. Um, What you're about to experience and what we can experience uh, together um, will be different, but hopefully we can glean a few truths about God's heart for justice, the reality of modern slavery, and a little bit about the relationship I think is necessary if we are going to contend for justice. And so the question that I start with is, what are we doing here? I don't know if you guys have ever been asked that question. like, What are we doing here? Well, I was asked that question once. It was by my wife on our wedding day. You see, you see, I mean I got married fairly young. Like I met the lovely and talented Linda Marie on the first day of freshman orientation at college and we got married just a few weeks after graduation. And I knew that she would be a beautiful bride. I knew the wedding would be wonderful and the reception would be one of the best parties I'd ever attended and I was right. But the groom has one responsibility and that's to plan the exit. And I wanted wanted a tremendous exit from our wedding. I wanted her to have a story she could tell. I wanted something spectacular. So I thought about the different options, and most people leave in a car or a carriage, but I thought, what if we flew away from the wedding? Like, that would be amazing. A hot air balloon. That would be the best ever. So I went to the phone book, and for those of you guys who are young, there used to be books with phone numbers in them, Um, I went to the phone book, and I found some hot air balloon pilots, and I called them, and they came out to the reception site, three of them, and they looked at the reception site, the building and everything there, and they said, this is impossible. Like, the, the balloon would never clear the roof of the building, and if it did, it would never clear that stand of trees out there. So, undaunted, I contacted a fourth hot air balloon pilot, and he came out and told me exactly what my itching ears wanted to hear. He said, no problem. Okay, so there we are. Like, we're, we're dancing up a storm. We're cutting a big cake. All the while, they're inflating this colorful balloon outside, and nobody knows. It's a complete surprise. The lovely and talented has no idea. <laughs> so the reception is ending, and everyone files out, and they form this human channel between the door of the reception hall and the balloon basket. And the lovely and talented and I come out, and we run through this human channel under a canopy of falling birdseed. It was really awesome. And we're running down. She hops into the basket, and it's just me, the hot air balloon pilot, and the lovely. And she tosses her bouquet to the single women on the ground. Guys, it was awesome. He pulls the lever. Shh, we start to float away. Kids are running after us, waving. I mean, it was... If this were a movie, this would be, and the crowd goes wild kind of moment. And then I looked, and I saw the slate roof. And we cleared it. Like, I was really relieved. Um, And so we're going along, when all of a sudden, we saw the stand of trees. Now, I have to tell you that... (laughs) I have to tell you, I have a pretty good sense of depth perception and distance and I saw the trees coming and I registered my concern with Mr. Hot Air Balloon pilot number four and told him take us higher and he said no problem. So we're getting closer and closer when all of a sudden the bottom of the basket clips the top of the trees which causes the basket to swing like a giant pendulum under the balloon. Which drove the lovely and talented into my arms, which was part of my long-term plan for the evening. But (laughs) Balloon Boy was killing the mood. (laughs) I had lost all confidence in my balloon pilot. And I said, I think we would like to walk upon the earth once more. He located a field and began the descent. And then he turns to me and says, hey, um, when we land, it's going to be bumpy. I said, well, that kind of makes sense. There are no wheels on the bottom of a basket, right? But he didn't have a chase team to sort of like help pull the basket down. So we're coming in for our landing. And it felt like we were coming in a little fast. The basket hits the ground and bounces up. It hits the ground again when all of a sudden the momentum, so the wind whips the balloon around onto its side tips the basket over. Now, at this point, I am on all fours in the basket. The lovely and talented is on my back, and Balloon Boy is underneath me. (laughs) When the momentum of the balloon begins to drag the basket across the cow pasture like a giant pooper scooper. (laughs) We finally came to a stop. Everyone was okay. The balloon pilot walked to the road to try and flag down a vehicle. I turned the basket over, and the lovely and talented and I enjoyed a quiet moment in the country. (laughs) And she turned to me with these bright eyes and this winning smile, and she said, that was an amazing ride. (laughs) At which point I knew I am the luckiest man in the world. And then she turned to me and said, what are we doing here? And it was a perfectly legitimate question because just a few minutes ago we had been with all of our family and friends at this wonderful wedding reception and now we're in the middle of a cow pasture turned FAA crash site. What are we doing here? And perhaps you guys ask yourselves that question sometimes when the momentum of life drags you into unexpected places or difficult challenges or like this morning, when we're confronted with the reality of modern day slavery. And when we ask the question, what are we doing here? What we're really saying is, we want a plan. We want to know what the goals are. We want to know what is going to come next. And fortunately, scripture is not silent about that. Jesus was asked the same question. It was in his inaugural address that he answered it. And of course, the purpose of an inaugural address is to set out your goals, your goals, for the next administration, right? We, do, we experience this every four years in Washington, D.C., when pundits spin themselves into circles as we have a new inauguration, a new administration. And so Jesus, before he gave this, had just returned from 40 days of testing in the wilderness where he bested the devil in a three-to-nothing route. And he returns to his hometown of Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue as is his habit. He stands up and... And this is not an ordinary moment. There's nothing typical about this. The scripture says that everyone's eyes were fixed on him. The NIV says fastened on him. And he unrolls the scroll to Isaiah 61. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, uh, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, in this sort of like drop the mic moment, he rolls up the scroll, and he sits down. And everyone just stares at him. And then Jesus breaks the awkward silence by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then, like in our day, the political pundits of that day The verbal sharpshooters started sniping at Jesus, and in an all-too-familiar way, they didn't go after the content of his speech, they went after his character. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? You could just hear the hushed whispers as they're still talking about the scandalous shotgun wedding of Joseph and Mary. Who is this guy? And then, that is when Jesus said that a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. You know, we can miss how much content is packed into this clear and concise presentation because everything in Jesus' ministry fits in his inaugural address. To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Because God is clear that he cares deeply about justice. He wants to set the oppressed free. He wanted the Hebrews freed from slavery. He wanted the Israelites liberated from the Babylonian captivity. He wants us free from the clutches of our own sin. In Micah 6.8, it tells us that our mandate is to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And so what does it mean to seek justice? What is, it, what is, what is justice? My philosophy professors engaged in intellectual gymnastics. They twisted themselves into unuseful pretzels trying to wrestle with what justice is but we can rest in the very clear idea that justice is simply making wrong things right it's seeing something wrong and working to make it right big things little things global things local things in this tuesday i was up in new york city at the united nations when they unveiled the new global estimate for forced labor and sex trafficking 24.9 million people around the world Lots of different estimates have different numbers. We honestly have no idea the true number, but these estimates give us a a goal, a sense that the problem is massive and we should do something. But these people have the same problem. They don't get to make the most basic decisions about their lives. Someone else decides when they wake up in the morning, where they work, and who touches their bodies. The vast majority of them are in the developing world but i have met with victims around the united states and right here in northern virginia and some of us may not realize that this is big business this is an economically motivated crime the international labor organization estimates that the annual profits from trafficking in persons is over 150 billion with a b dollars a year which means that it is more than microsoft bp samsung exxon and apple combined. They are making a ton of money. And I don't know about you, but when I deal with numbers that end in the word billions it can be a little overwhelming. It can be difficult to comprehend. So what if we zoom in on one individual that's a part of those statistics? Consider this passage written in a personal diary by a human trafficking victim right here in the United States. This is what she wrote. If I think about my future, my future life, I imagine nothing but tears, bruises on my body, being beaten for no reason, just because he is in a bad mood. This is not life. If it is, it's only the life of a slave. Am I really such a bad person that I deserve this kind of life and treatment? I can no longer live being scared all the time. I'm tired of being manipulated all the time and being physically and mentally hurt. My God, I need your justice. Please, why is all this happening to me? Am I so bad that I deserve it? I tolerate it as much as I can, but I am exhausted already. Help me, God. I need you. This passage was written by a young woman that we'll call Tatiana, and when she wrote this diary entry, she had lost almost all hope. For years, she had been isolated and beaten and branded and violated in some of the most deeply personal ways, and she was not the only victim of this trafficker. There were several others. When any of them would disobey the trafficker, he would strip them and beat them in front of the other victims. One victim, in her pain, shouted, Oh, my God! And he stopped, and he turned to her, and he said, I am your God. And then the beating continued. And it was in this context that Tatiana penned her prayer. She cried, My God, I need your justice. Please help me. I need you. And when she wrote this, I had no idea who Tatiana was, and she didn't know me. But I was in her city, and we were investigating her trafficker, and we were closing in. You see, Tatiana had a a real clear problem. We also have a problem, but sometimes it's less clear, because we're not confronted on a daily basis with the reality, the brutal reality of trafficking. But our God sees it, and he calls us to see it as well. He's invited us into his work of seeking justice to set the oppressed free, to fulfill his inaugural promise in Luke 4. So how do we sustain it? How do we do it? I wonder this morning if I could dare to be a little bit vulnerable and share with you how God has taught our family about what to do, what practically to do, and the relationship necessary to sustain it. You know, when the lovely and talented and I left my law firm job and moved to India, this announcement was not met with universal praise. Many people told us that I was committing career suicide. They told us that I was putting my family at risk and we weren't going to make a difference anyway. Now, here are some of the arguments I heard Your wife is pregnant and your daughter is 14 months old. Why are you going? And of course, I'm thinking, look, this is India. They have a billion people. India's good at having babies. This is not going to be a problem. They said, what does a white southern lawyer from Virginia, whose name is John Cotton Richmond, know about rescuing slaves? They said, you have no experience and no qualifications. And they were right. But I've never quite understood why everybody is so excited about experience. As I read it, the people that built the ark were amateurs. The people that built the Titanic were experts. (laughs) Experience doesn't always work. In a sense, what everybody was saying to me is that we just don't measure up. And they were right. But the lovely and talented would tell you that we felt compelled to go when we did. And so there we are, getting used to the crowds and the sounds and the smells and the cadence of life of our new home in India when the very pregnant Linda Marie went into labor. And I grabbed our bag and we got to the taxi and rushed to the hospital, or I really should say we rushed to the taxi. The taxi was not going anywhere in that snarled traffic. I mean, literally, cows passed us on the side of the road. But somehow we made it to the hospital in time and shortly after we arrived, the lovely and talented gave birth to our son James without the benefit of even an Advil. And the rejoicing over creation's first breath quickly changed because everything went wrong. Linda had lost a tremendous amount of blood very quickly. She went into shock. She was convulsing. No one quite knew what to do. There was this sense of chaos that would crippled the entire theater and created paralysis, people's work to get things under control, but it became clear to me that she had lost way too much blood, and she needed a transfusion. And so I, I turned to the doctors and said, "She needs blood." And they looked back at me, and they said, "Did you bring any with you?" I said, "What? You all have a blood bank." You're, the, you're a trauma hospital. You're the best hospital in this city. And they said, we do have blood, but you don't want to use it. And so I went down to the blood bank. I called the two people I had gotten to know in India during those first few weeks. I said, it's an emergency. Linda needs blood. They took two units from my arm. And when they finished, I walked out into the lobby, and strangers had been sent, and they introduced themselves to me, and they said, we're here to give blood for Linda, in this this sense that strangers are showing up to pour out their blood to meet a need that we were impossible to meet on our own, that imagery was not lost on me in the moment. I went back up to Linda's room, and they started the drip, and the doctors gathered around, and they said, she's probably not going to make it through the night, and you need to figure out what to do with the baby, and then they all just walked out. And I looked down at my unconscious bride, and I realized they might be right. So I walked out into the hallway. It was dark, and it was quiet. It had that sterile smell that hospitals can have. Half a world away from everything and everyone that was familiar to me. I have never felt more alone or more scared And the adrenaline of the crisis now had abated. And now it was just fear and worry and tears and anger. And I began to argue with God. I began to say, you have to let her live. I mean, she deserves to live. My first appeal was to God's ego. I was saying, everyone said this was a bad idea, God. If you let her die, you're going to look bad. Turns out, God does not have a fragile ego. I did. I began to say, God, let her live. She deserves to live. Like, I came to do this really cool job. I get to break down doors and rescue slaves. But she could be a mom and an educator anywhere. And as I pleaded with God, as I begged him to let her live, I felt like he responded inside my heart so clearly. And he said, no. No, she doesn't deserve to live. You're not entitled to anything. Every breath is an unmerited gift. And the slaves you've come to rescue, they're not entitled to be rescued. I want them free because I made them. They're my kids. This sense that God wants us to know that every breath is an unmerited gift. Nothing Nothing we should take for granted. God wanted to get something straight with us from the beginning of our India journey, and that is that it is all about him, and it's not about us. I went to God like an advocate, armed with authority and arguments, in the biggest case of my life, and I felt like the judge of the universe just shot them all down. And what he wanted to communicate to me is that God is not a spiritual vending machine in which we insert our token of obedience and then take out our blessing of choice. He's not transactional. We don't matter more when we're good, and we don't matter less when we're bad, and there's not a stock ticker streaming across the screen of our lives telling us how we're measuring up at any given moment. You see, I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't clever enough, I wasn't strong enough to deal with my problem. And my identity was brought into sharp clarity that I am a mist, I am a vapor. I am here today and gone tomorrow. I am insignificant apart from God and yet eternally valuable because of him. And I was humbled because I could see myself for who I was and I could see God for who he is. And it turns out that is necessary to walk humbly with our God. And walking humbly with our God is the prerequisite to seeking justice and loving mercy. And I can tell you that Linda made it through that first night, and then she made it through the next night, and there were lots of complications, and she was weak for months. But as she slowly recovered, and our baby James grew, and our toddler Grace Lauren continued to twirl, I began to meet some slaves and some of them found freedom and justice was being done and this cadence and this story of justice began. But I can tell you the point of this is not that Linda lived. Many of us have prayed for and been in that spot where, where our loved ones didn't live or God didn't answer our prayer in that way. The point of the story is what God was teaching us in that moment that there's a clear understanding of our relationship with God and what it means to serve him. You know, we only got to live in India for a little over three years, but our time there had a massive impact on our family and the trajectory of our lives. My job at IJM was basically find slaves, build a replicable model of rescue, and assemble a team to sustain that model. And about that time, I had the opportunity to return to the United States and form a specialized human trafficking unit at the Department of Justice, a specialized unit of prosecutors. And then for over a decade, I got to travel around the United States and every week work labor and sex trafficking cases, every week meeting victims and hearing their stories. But I also got to spend a lot of time with traffickers. And I can tell you, they have stories too. And during this time, my knowledge and understanding of human trafficking grew tremendously. You know, I never would have had that experience had I stayed in India. I can also tell you that our first few years back from India, our first few years living in northern Virginia, were some of the loneliest and most difficult years our family has endured. In some ways, it was more challenging than our dramatic entrance into India. Close friendships and community seem like a thing of the past. And we would daydream about how to escape from this region. Meanwhile, my work took me to the United Nations and countries all over the world, and I got to learn how traffickers can actually be stopped. In my decade as a federal prosecutor, in this sort of 30,000-foot view of the global battle against human trafficking, It gave me the opportunity to believe what was possible. So for 15 years, I've been working on this, first with an NGO, then with the government, and now with the Human Trafficking Institute, and I've learned several things. The first is that evil is real. Millions and millions of people live in fear of violence and pain. And the depraved nature of people, unrestrained by the Holy Spirit, knows no limits. Modern slavery is just one of its most offensive and brutal expressions. The other thing I've learned is that it can be stopped. Human trafficking is just not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's not a weather pattern. It's not a storm or an earthquake or a drought because all of those adversely impact the poor but none of them are caused by the intentional choice of an individual. But trafficking is different. It's a crime. It's always caused by a person intentionally choosing to exploit others for profit. And because of that we're not limited, we're not relegated just mitigating the consequences of trafficking. We can stop slavery at its source by stopping the people who choose to commit the crime. In working with the Department of Justice and the FBI and Homeland Security, we developed proven strategies to stop traffickers. And what I've come to know is that the question is no longer whether traffickers can be stopped, the question is whether communities will come together and do the things to fulfill the Luke Four inaugural promise of setting the oppressed free. Or as my friend and former boss Gary Haugen has said, The question is not whether slavery can be defeated. The question is whether this generation will be the ones to sweep it into the dustbin of history. You know, the point of Freedom Sunday is to mobilize God's heart for justice in the people who follow him so that they can be empowered to seek justice in all areas of their lives, working to make wrong things right. And although Freedom Sunday is not meant to be a commercial for any. One organization, I can tell you that over the years, I have seen a lot of NGOs come and go. And few have stood the test of time and are worthy of your support, like International Justice Mission. You standing with them is smart. It's effective, and your resources are well placed. The key is we have to choose to care more about people we don't know than the traffickers care about their own self-preservation and liberty. To be successful, we have to care more about the folks that we don't even know than the traffickers care about themselves. That's the tipping point. At that point, everything changes. You know, I can tell you that that diary entry that Tatiana wrote was not her last entry. Several weeks after she wrote that, federal agents executed raids simultaneously on five different locations. We found all the victims, including Tatiana. And I can tell you that the courtroom fell silent when she told the jury about her ordeal. And when she read her diary entry, there was not a dry eye in the courthouse. And then she looked right at me, and with a half-smile, she looked beyond me to the agents, and then she looked at the NGOs in the gallery, and she scanned up to see the judge, and she panned to look at the jury, and she had no fear anymore. All of a sudden, you could see in her eyes, she realized that she wasn't worthless That she had value. And now, as she told her story, it was her trafficker who had to sit silently in his seat and listen to her. And when the jury convicted on all counts, and when the judge sentenced him to life, I have to tell you, it was, and the crowd goes wild, kind of moment. It was amazing. Guys, this is a fantastic time to be alive. Because never before have we understood the problem with such clarity. Information is moving around this world instantly. Never before have we had national laws and international leaders speaking with one common voice about this moral imperative. And never before have we had the resources and the wealth that can enable change to come. And all of this work, all of these efforts, are nothing more than opportunities to join God in what he's doing knowing that he cares more about the oppressed than we do. He wants them free because he created them, and we just get to be co-laborers with Christ, fulfilling the Luke 4 inaugural while we walk humbly with our God. And I have to tell you that I am encouraged that scripture promises us that the gates of hell will not stand, which means we as the church do not have to cower in a defensive crouch. We do not have to live in a protective bubble. We are offensive, and we are promised victory. The oppressed will be set free. So what are we doing here? Well, we should be making wrong things right. We should be caring for others, the foreigner, the stranger, the least of these, the refugee, and those who are oppressed by traffickers. We should be fulfilling Jesus' promise in Luke 4. And if we are walking humbly with our God, then we will be helping his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you love justice, that you love people, and that you want everyone reconciled to you. We pray today that all of us will work to make wrong things right in every area of our lives, but that we will also work to set the oppressed free. We ask you to bring an end to modern slavery and empower the organizations and the governments that are working on this issue to do more and more each year. God, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your love. And thank you that you call us by name. Amen.